We are in the third week of a series through the book of Romans called Salvation Spaces. And it's our goal through this series uh, to be looking at how the gospel, the good news of Jesus, intersects with the different areas or the spaces uh, of our lives. And we spent the first week in this series talking simply about what this gospel is, what this good news message is, how it originated from the space of the throne room of God, that God as king over everything, that this gospel, this good news, this plan originated with him, that it was his will for a restoration of relationship with his creation. We talked about the greatness, the grandness, the majesty that such a throne room brings, the images that brings, and how Jesus, though in the midst of that, would be a king who would step away, step down from that throne in order to pursue us and to bring us this restorative grace. That kind of laid the, fra- the, the, the framework for much of what we'll talk about, continue to talk about through uh, this book of Romans as we looked last week at kind of our first uh, $1 word. By $1 word, when I was in elementary school, the big words were always described as $1 words, and so we uh, have been tackling some of these big words, like last week we looked at propitiation. Uh, This big word that means this idea uh, of God's wrath against sin being poured out, but not poured out on us, but rather that He would pour it out on Jesus. That because of God's extreme love for us, He has a wrath against what sin does to us and through us, and so He would pour out his wrath on Jesus, taking the penalty instead of us, that we get to have a relationship with him because of that, that Jesus was sacrificed as this lamb on the space of an altar. And so this morning we enter into a new space, the space of a courtroom, looking at this idea, this word of justification. You might think that a courtroom is an odd place for the gospel to intersect with our lives, but justification at its root is a legal term. It is a judge determining whether you are guilty or innocent, that whether you are in the right or in the wrong. Now, I'm not sure exactly what you picture when you think of the space of a courtroom. Maybe you think of old men in long black robes with powdered wigs and a gavel. Uh, For me, I I think maybe the opposite end of that uh, spectrum. I think of a Jewish lady from Brooklyn, a tiny lady named Judith Scheinman. Uh, You probably know her better as Judge Judy. Uh, I remember many a summer break as a kid watching this tour de force of legal justice dole out rulings even on the mundane during daytime television. One of my favorite judgments as I kind of looked into this this week uh, was entitled How to Lose a Court Case in 26 Seconds. Uh, There's a woman claiming a defendant had stolen her purse and so Judge Judy asked her to list the contents and she said, well, my wallet was in there uh, with 50 bucks. I had to replace all of my IDs. I had gift cards in there, uh, my earpiece, and a calculator, at which point the defendant chimes in and says, there was no earpiece in there, ma'am. Uh, she just had to kind of face palm, uh, awarded $500 to uh, the plaintiff, and the case was closed. I'm, I'm sure that man is probably still wondering to this day how she arrived at such a conclusion. Uh, now, I know this is a, a comical and relatively inconsequential minor case on daytime TV, but if you ever have to go to court yourself, or have had to go in the past, it's probably not so fun. A courtroom can be a place, depending on the case, of fear and pain, of loss and heartache, of life-changing judgments and rulings. They can be frightening for many reasons, but particularly frightening if you know you're guilty. But before we get too far ahead of ourselves this morning, I think it's important to define our terms a little bit more. 
Because while it's not quite as big of a word as propitiation, I still think we first have to answer the question, what is justification? It goes back to kind of where we focused last week that we remember Paul spent three chapters, the first three chapters of this letter, explaining how all of us are guilty of sin. All of us are sinners. It sounds obvious, but Paul systematically shows us that all of us, bad guys, good guys, even God's guys, when relying on ourselves and our own merits, all of us are guilty of sin. That all of us are under that, that weight and that guilt. And so the conclusion that he draws after those three chapters is this, Romans 3.10, he says, for we have already made the charge, notice the legal language, the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. But we aren't left here because of what Jesus has done. Paul continues in 3.22, he says, This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Several times throughout these verses, Paul uses these, this phrase, this word righteous or righteousness. And at first, it kind of sounds like a contradiction here that you know, no one is righteous, but at the same time, we can all have righteousness through Jesus. And I think the reason it sounds like a contradiction is because we tend to think of righteousness as kind of this fancy church word just for being good. And it can mean that. I mean, righteousness can stand for virtue and integrity and, and upright behavior. This is kind of what Jesus has in mind when he comes to John the Baptist in the beginning of his ministry to be baptized, and John kind of protests. But Jesus says, let it be so now that it is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus says we, we should do this because this is ought to, ought how it to be done. And so it's in this sense that no one is righteous. No one is good enough on their own to, to measure up to God's perfect standard. But righteousness can also mean a right standing with God. And that's what Romans spends most of this time developing. Now, you might be thinking, okay, great dictionary work, Bryce, you know, really learning some things here, but I thought we were talking about justification and not righteousness. But righteousness and justice are literally basically the, the, the same word in Greek, this original language. It's only in English that we have these two words for the same idea, that justification in its sense is, is a sense of rightness. That as we enter into this courtroom, Jesus is offering us a right standing before God. And so asking the question of what is justification, it is simply being in the right. The verdict is good that we have been acquitted of all charges. But I think in order to understand this fully, what justification offers to us, we have to answer this question, why do we need it? And to answer that, I'd love for you to turn in your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 5 this morning. But as I read Romans 5, I want to start uh, not in verse 1, but kind of go backwards, work our way back to verse 1 by starting in verse 6 today. In any trial, the charges against you are read first, and so that's kind of what Paul does today in verse 6. These are the charges against us. He says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good, good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Paul brings before us these, these charges of our state, of where we were, of what we were guilty of before Jesus died for us. And the first is that he tells us that we were powerless. I don't know if we have. We tend to have a lot of resources and independence in our lives, but have you ever felt powerless? As I thought about the question this week, a very specific picture popped into my head. Um, you know, most of you know that we have uh, three boys, and the jury is still out on Ashford, our youngest, but as far as Brannigan and Chandler go, their personalities could not be more different. Uh, for instance, Chandler, our oldest, he, uh, from the moment that he could walk and move, has seemed determined to end up in a full body cast, you know? Uh, and for the first year of his life, Brannigan wouldn't even get off the couch uh, unless his feet could touch the ground before his body, upper body left the cushions. You know, anyone else have those kind of dichotomies? One is determined to kill himself, and the other is like, I will not move unless I am assured of absolute safety. And, and so when, at about a year and a half old, when Brandon was that age, we went to a place called Kangaroo Jacks. It's kind of an inside playground and jump place. Uh, and Chandler, he goes charging down this slide, you know, without missing a beat. And then Brandon goes. And this is how Brandon went down. <laughs> He hung there for probably 20 seconds until he had absolutely no other recourse but to let go and slide down this very gentle slide about three feet. Uh, to me, this is what powerless feels like. You know, hanging, uncertain, unable to do anything. For a more serious example, most of you know that a couple of months ago when our youngest was born, we spent nine days in the NICU. And I know a lot of people have to spend a lot longer there, and so uh, you know, it is a blessing that we were able to uh, get out of there so quickly. But there have been a few times in my life where I have felt the, the more powerless than that. About an hour after he was born, they whisked him away uh, when they noticed that his breathing was kind of labored. And, and next time we saw him, he's on a CPAP and oxygen and a feeding tube and a heart monitor and a respiratory monitor. And I felt so powerless to do anything to help him. But on top of that, I felt powerless just in the circumstances as a whole. Our, our one-day stay turned into three days, turned into five days, turned into seven days, and turned into nine days. And I found myself just becoming more angry that they just wouldn't let him come home. And it was also a time where I felt extremely unsettled. I counted it up in the course of those nine days. I slept in six different rooms and six different beds. You know, it was just a time of powerlessness. Have you ever felt powerless? This is where we were when Jesus decided to die for us, to pay the price that will allow, allow us to trade our lack of righteousness for his righteousness. People, you know this, but nothing could, it's nothing that we could do to make this happen ourselves. That's what powerless means. We were barely hanging on, unable to do anything, helpless, angry, uncertain. And what I love about this is that Jesus didn't wait for us to be strong or worthy or self-sufficient or in control before he would trade his life for ours. Of course, the reason that we have to remember that we were powerless is because not of circumstances outside of our control, 
but that this powerlessness was self-inflicted because of sin. The second charge, that we were powerless, but we were also sinners. I love Romans 5, 8. It's probably a verse that you have heard before, that God demonstrates his love for us, and that the fact that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And to illustrate this, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to put a picture up. There might be a little bit of a trigger for a few of you. I want to kind of warn you of that. It might spark feelings of of dread or fear or utter despair. And I just, I want you to know that you've been warned and if you need to look away, that's okay too. Are you ready for it? How many of you, yeah, thank you uh, for the gasp. How many of you kind of grew up with one of these in your kitchen? If you're not familiar with it, it looks just like a sponge on a stick and the stick fills with soap. But what this meant for me was double dish duty. Uh, To this day, she swears that she didn't, but I know in my heart of hearts that my mom would make us use one of these on all of the dishes before they went into the dishwasher. You know, to to use this sponge to get all the gunk and grime and food leftovers off before putting the dishes in a machine designed to get all the grime and gunk and food leftovers off. And what's truly remarkable to me is that Jesus doesn't do this. Jesus doesn't wait for us to clean up our lives or to get everything in order or start behaving and doing the right thing and say, okay, you know, I'll take you now. Maybe on just a probationary basis at first to make sure that you you really don't mess up anymore. No, instead, while we were still rebels, screw-ups, lost causes, messes, broken, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And the greatest charge against us is saved for last, that we weren't just powerless, we weren't just sinners, that we were active in this process. It was willful rebellion. We were his enemies. Now, maybe I'm alone in this, but I don't really think that I have enemies. At least I I know I'm certainly not cool enough to have a nemesis. You've got to be like a superhero for that. But, But I do think we can all universally kind of agree on that we have been hurt before. Maybe even hurt by people who have claimed to love us. I have in my office two stacks and a file folder of cards. Uh, one stack, thankfully the bigger stack, are cards of appreciation and gratitude and encouragement over the years of ministry. But there's another stack of notes where people have not been so gracious. I know you think being in ministry, everyone must like you, right? Nobody ever has any problems with you, but alas, it happens occasionally. And this week, Kelsey and I were cleaning out one of our closets, and I came across a file folder with some of those critiques in them. And as I read through them, I don't know why, I'm not a masochist, but, uh, you know, I, I found myself, some of them made me angry. Some of them made me confused. Some of them left me hurt just as I was back when I got them. Some of them kind of shook my confidence. And you probably have experiences like that where you can think back on maybe some of those mental notes in your mind. Someone, intentional or not, cut you deeply. And try as you might to forget, maybe it's as fresh today as when it first happened. And I think this is a dimension of sin that we don't often think about. That sin is not just something that we do that is wrong, but it's something that grieves God. That it breaks our relationship with Him. That it sets us up in opposition to who He is, in opposition to to His kingdom. That it makes us His enemies. And so the charges are read that we were powerless, we were sinners, we were enemies of God, and we are guilty on all accounts. And yet, when the gavel slammed down, 
It wasn't you who were called on to pay the penalty. It was Jesus. Last week in Romans chapter 3, we saw this description that God is both just and justifier. That God is just, that he is righteous, that he couldn't ignore the crimes and the sin and the rebellion in our lives, that our guilt demanded a response. But God is also justifier. That he would be the one who would pave the way to deem us righteous, not through our own actions, but through his. That we get to trade our powerlessness for his strength. We trade our sin for his perfection. We trade our rebellion for reconciliation. We didn't do anything to earn it. In fact, quite the opposite. We have done everything to be in opposition to it. And yet, because of his love for us, he would be called guilty so that we could be called justified, righteous, and in God's good standing. And so what I want to do is spend the rest of our time this morning looking briefly at what this verdict brings us. That as we have been acquitted of these charges, as Jesus has taken them on himself, we receive a number of things. And we see those jumping back to chapter 5, verse 1. It says, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that our suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Other translations say hope does not disappoint because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, when we deserved only condemnation and guilt and punishment, punishment God gave us so much more than we could ever ask for. First, we see that because of this verdict of being called justified and righteous, we have peace. Before, we were God's enemies. We were at war. We were at odds. We were on the losing end of a battle that we couldn't possibly hope to win. And you've been in fights, enough fights before, maybe with your spouse or a friend, that you know when a relationship is broken. In order for it to be fixed, in order to have that peace, One of you has to swallow your pride and make the first move. Maybe right now you're thinking of an area where you're in conflict with somebody in a broken relationship right now, and you know you need to swallow your pride and make the first move. But the gospel of justification tells us that while we were still in rebellion against God, while we were still his enemies, God would be the one to make the first move. And while we were deserving of wrath, And guilt, he sent Jesus to die for us to give us peace and freedom. You didn't find God by searching for him in your good merit. He found you. And Jesus didn't just preach at us to love our enemies. He did it himself when he took the nails and was whipped and beaten and stabbed for you before you ever even knew you needed him. You didn't earn your peace with God. We can't work for our justification. You can't ever be so good that God will love you more because he has already loved you first and loved you enough to send his son for you. We have peace. In that peace, we also have hope. We live in a world fraught with with anxiety. And it's not without reason. I mean, we have economic struggles and relational struggles. I mean, we're literally living in a world where there is war happening right now as we speak. And yet, in the midst of all of that, we have hope. 
Because Jesus never promised us that life would be easy. In fact, he told us the opposite. As Jesus was preparing his disciples for his crucifixion, he says to them in John 16, 33, I have told you these things, that in, you, in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus promises us in this world we will have trouble, but that suffering is not for nothing. That because we know that we have peace with God, that we have a place with him forever, the sufferings we face encourage us to persevere, encourage us to be shaped to look more like him in our character and to hope in him. That we rest and that Jesus has overcome. Overcome the world and it started in overcoming our own sin and our own rebellion. Lastly, we see that because of our righteousness, we have the Holy Spirit. And this is something that we'll talk about more in the coming weeks as these areas, these spaces continue to intersect and overlap. But I don't think that we can afford to ignore the Holy Spirit in this part, where the, the one that brings us our peace and our hope. Scripture de describes the Holy Spirit in so many different ways, comforter and counselor and advocate, but one of my favorites is a seal. Not, like, or, or, not, not that kind of seal, uh, but a seal, a, a guarantee for us. Ephesians 1.13 says, And you were also included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. You see, in Christ, we are all marked men, but not marked for destruction, marked for life. Marked, justified, marked is. We aren't justified because we followed the right rules. We aren't justified because we deserved it or earned it. We are justified because of his love for us, his grace lavished on us, his righteousness given to us, and his spirit that resides within us. But this only comes when we lay down our weapons. When we decide to stop fighting the one who says, I will die so that you can live. I will take your guilt so that you can live in freedom. This is the hope that we have today. If you've been living under the guilt of sin and the guilt of your, your rebellion, your powerlessness, your sin, you being an enemy of God, you know how crushing that can be. What's perhaps even more crushing is trying to earn our way out of it, being continually disappointed that we didn't measure up. The hope that we have today is that Jesus took that guilt upon himself so that we could live in his freedom. That despite our powerlessness, our sin, our rebellion, when we acknowledge Jesus as Lord, as King, we receive instead peace and hope and the promise of the Holy Spirit living within us. And so this morning, I want to end simply with the words that Paul uses at the end of chapter 4. He says, God will credit righteousness for us who believe in him, who raised Jesus Christ, our, Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. I want to encourage you this morning to lay down your guilt, give it to him, and to walk free from the courtroom today.
Imagine you are before a judge. He is robed with honor and authority. All rise as he walks from his chamber to the bench. He sits and before him is a gavel, that instrument of order which silences a room. There is no jury here. Only one is righteous enough to determine those who have broken the law and the sentence they receive. He is separated by a desk and the file full of charges. The arraignment begins. You sit as defendant and listen as the judge reads the charges. There is no mistake, no omission. From the greatest trespass to the least, you are guilty. The evidence is too clear, the witnesses too loud. The judge shuts the file and delivers his verdict. Guilty. The bailiff comes to chain and usher, but it is not for you. It is another. Who is this man? Why should he bear my crime, my guilt, my blame? Why is he led away to bear my sentence, my punishment, my shame? He is the Holy One, the Word made flesh, his perfection charged to me. So he could take my trespasses and bear my penalty, his righteousness exchanged for the deeds that I have done. He wears my prison clothes and chains so I can know his love. Here I stand. I'm free. Not because of what I've done, but because I've seen and tasted of the Savior and his love. Justice is served and love is shared. Both held within our God. He offers hope and takes despair. He is the just and justifier. Justification is ours in Christ. And now we are the righteous, not because our deeds were good, but because God credited his righteousness. If you have not made the decision to allow Christ to be your justification, We'd encourage you to make that decision. I'll be up here doing this next song uh, and to be talking about that. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for what you have done for us. As we continue to look at all of these things, the, the way the gospel plays out in our lives, we are just beyond grateful that you have made a way for us to be in relationship with you. God, we recognize our powerlessness, our sinfulness, our rebellion, that we were your enemies. And yet in the midst of that, you loved us enough that you would take our place and give us your righteousness. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice and for the newness of life through the resurrection that we get to experience and the hope that we have because of that. The peace that we now have with you and the Holy Spirit that resides within us to guide us and shape us to look more like you. And it's my prayer that we would continually be reminded of what you have done for us and the freedom that we have because of Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.